Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm in New York City, joining us from Washington, D.C., in our studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK. We have Susan Glasser, the chief international columnist at Politico. We've got Laura Rosenberger, who's the director for the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. We have Rosa Brooks somewhere at the Georgetown School of Law and on her back porch, sunning herself in Palo Alto, <laughs> California. <laughs> we have Corey Shockey, who's the hardest working, least working woman in show business. Um, in other words, she gets a lot done, but she manages to get it done while <laughs> maintaining an even tan. Um, uh let me start with something that, you know, I mean, we've had a lot of news uh, in the past few days, uh, clearly tragic news out of uh, Las Vegas and a subject we may want to turn to in its kind of international context a little bit later. Uh, clearly ongoing uh, uh, human tragedy unfolding in Puerto Rico, uh, political debates swirling in the United States regarding scandals in the current administration. Uh uh, uh, violent elections in Spain. But I, I want to start someplace that to me is perhaps the most historically anomalous of all of these things. And that is the um, truly bizarre turn of events over the weekend in which the President of the United States uh, essentially threw the Secretary of State of the United States under the bus. Uh, said that he, he distanced himself from his efforts at negotiating, uh, said they wouldn't work, and implied that somehow the White House would take care of things a different way, uh, which, of course, doesn't leave a whole lot of options. Uh, I, I noticed as I was sitting at my you know, Twitter keyboard, typing in the words, I don't think this has ever happened before, that, Susan, you got there before I did, and almost simultaneously said, I don't think this has ever happened before. And so I think the best place to begin is to put it in a little bit of context. Let me start with you, Susan. How do you see this just in the context of how administrations usually work? Well, look, I think obviously this is another Trump phenomenon where we're, we're doing contortions and twisting over ourselves to come up with new superlatives or synonyms for the word that mean unprecedented or never happened before. Obviously, no president has really used Twitter before. Obviously, no president has really used Twitter before to undercut and undermine his own secretary of state. Uh, people who spent a lot more time than I have trying to understand how uh, 
American foreign policy works, you know, are beside themselves uh, trying to come up with never in my 50 years of observing this, never in my dot, dot, dot. The bottom line is clearly nobody thinks this is remotely comparable uh, to anything that's happened before. Have presidents disagreed with their secretaries of state before? Of course they have. Uh, What do they do? They do what George W. Bush did when he was not happy about North Korea negotiations uh, in his first term in office. He calls up his national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice, and he says, I'm really pissed about that story in the paper today. Could you go take care of this? <laughs> and a few hours of later, his sec- hours later, his Secretary of State, uh, you know, has to eat some crow. That's how it worked in any other administration, but not this one. Um, Laura, you were in the last administration. You were in the White House. Um, you even had a situation where sometimes the Secretary of State felt that he was out of the loop and that the White House was bigfooting him. I know that there were regular denials of that, but let's just stipulate that for the moment. Um, how damaging do you think this kind of befa- behavior is, particularly in the special context of North Korea? I think Susan's exactly right in terms of the, you know, unprecedented nature and the the comparison with what we would have seen in the Bush administration as the sort of behind closed doors management of these disagreements. I mean, the key in a situation like North Korea is, number one, it's an extraordinarily complicated situation where you need the entire strategy to work together. You need all the parts to be hanging together. And while the president's tweets over the weekend, tweets um, may have taken it to a new extreme. He's actually been getting in the way of his administration on North Korea consistently for the last several months. It's apparent that parts of his administration are trying to execute a strategy, have something in mind that they're trying to achieve. And the president, in a completely detached way, in a way that appears to be completely at odds with that strategy, um, just keeps lobbing in his own sentiments. And what that means is we lose credibility with our allies who don't understand what our strategy is. And most problematic for me, it really undermines um, our deterrence um, because Kim Jong-un doesn't know what is credible and what is not. Um, It undermines any ability to negotiate because if Kim Jong-un doesn't believe that negotiations are serious, he has no incentive to engage. Um, And it ups the risk of miscalculation when you have a a lack of clarity about what, in fact, the U.S. intentions are. So, Corey, it must warm your heart to hear all of this discussion of how extremely well-oiled the Bush machine was and how how it's worked better. <laughs> prior, uh, you know, I thought I worked on the worst NSC in the history of these United States, and that may have been true at the time. But I've now been bested by both subsequent administrations. The Obama NSC appeared to have no connection whatever to the rest of the government, and oh, to work geez. privately as. Ben Rhodes and the White House chief of staff talking to the president rather than the president talking to the secretary of state and secretary of defense. And now the Trump administration appears to have, well, words fail me, I have to say. But I do think if they have a strategy, I can't see it. And I just don't see an upside to the president of the United States emasculating his secretary of state in the midst of delicate conversations with, you know, the rising power of China over the immediate danger we are facing 
because of North Korea. I just don't see what the upside is to this. Well, that's there is a question. no upside. Rosa, how many times can you emasculate <laughs> the same steer? Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, I raised <laughs> cattle. I know the answer to that. I, I don't want to go there. Um, I don't, <laughs> but I do want to say we're, we are all talking. We keep having these conversations as if Trump has some plan that we just can't quite understand. You know, maybe a bad plan that we wouldn't agree with, but that there's a plan. There is no plan. He's crazy. And, I, you know, I, I, I think we have to stop acting as though it's anything other than that, because it's not. You know, and, and I think we have to hope. And, and, and this may, in fact, be the case. This would be the, the best case scenario for the United States of America right now is that both our allies and our adversaries realize that nothing Trump says matters. And they realize that, in fact, they're going to have to be basically dealing with decisions made by the Pentagon. Who knows? Maybe Rex Tillerson will be allowed to make a decision every now and then. But that the noises coming out of the White House are largely irrelevant, for better or for worse. The happy noises are irrelevant and the threatening noises are irrelevant. You know, so that would be the best case scenario is that the entire world gets that they're supposed to ignore Donald Trump. Can Worst I just disagree with that? that? They don't know. <laughs> That's crazy. Sure, sure. Go, ahead. go ahead. Disagree. So, Rosa, I mean, first of all, I do agree absolutely that there's no strategy here. Uh, and interestingly, to that point, uh, Peter my Baker, my husband, was writing the news story off of this yesterday in The New York Times. And he has an interesting paragraph from someone in the White House basically when, of course, he he queried him and said, well, what did Trump mean by this tweet? And, you know, this this official came back and said, yeah, he was just pissed. He was angry. Uh, you know, he didn't like it and he tweeted. Um, so that goes to your lack of strategy point. Where I would disagree is on the it doesn't matter. I, I think that it does matter what Trump says in part because there is no other actual guide to what the president of the United States really thinks. He doesn't have an ideology in any reliable sense that one could turn to. He doesn't have a fixed set of advisors who he you know, has developed a, a, a strong working relationship with on substantive issues. Uh, so we can understand, OK, well, we don't know what Trump thinks, but McMaster uh, speaks for him. McMaster doesn't speak for him any more than Rex Tillerson speaks for Donald Trump. And when I look at the North Korea thing, I, I'm, I'm no expert. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to hear what, what Laura and everyone else thinks. But you know, they are – he's sitting in the chair and they are presenting him with options. It looks to me like, you know, luckily, knock wood, you know, at least so far he's not saying, damn it, you know, bomb them or, you know, let's start a nuclear war. But they're clearly presenting him with options to escalate uh, the conflict uh, in a real sense as well as in a rhetorical sense. And he gets to make those calls. And it might be a series of relatively smaller decisions, but that lead us – to a place that that one way or the other Trump is accountable for and is is shaped and influenced by his views. Well, that that's where I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I, Susan, up to a point, I think that's absolutely right. You know, that what Trump says matters. It matters. There are two ways in which it could matter, right? It could matter if crazy as he is, his craziness still dictates the behavior of all other actors in the U.S. government. And it could matter if crazy as he is, people in other countries thinks he matters. So that's why I say best case scenario, everybody else ignores him. Um, because then he doesn't matter very much if everybody else ignores him. But but I think the, the, more, the more complicated issue, and I honestly do not know the answer to this question, more complicated question is to what extent is anybody really letting him steer and to what extent does he actually want to steer? 
You know, and I don't think we know the answer to that. I, I don't think we know the answer to whether he just tweets every now and then and then loses interest and says to Madison, everybody else, oh, do whatever. And I'll just tweet pissed off things periodically versus to what extent he's actually making decisions. I don't know. Well, let me so let me just I, inter- let me let me interrupt here for a second so we can break this down into some component parts. First of all, I, you know, the notion that anybody in the world is going to say the president doesn't matter at all in this equation seems to be kind of far-fetched. They, they may think he matters less or they may think he matters a little bit more, but that he doesn't matter at all or that he doesn't have power when he can actually issue orders seems a little far-fetched. But let's, 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 let's break it down into you know a couple component parts. And let me start, I mean, Corey, you were going to step in with something and there is a big temptation to think that the madman theory is genius strategy. And I think that's nonsense. I think it's always been nonsense. And it's especially nonsense for a country like the United States, whose greatest advantage in foreign policy is its ability to cajole and organize other countries into playing on our team. And one of the... One of the downsides of the president's intemperate tweets undercutting the Secretary of State is that, um, you know, diplomacy is not just important for resolving problems. Diplomacy is also important for preparing uh, publics for what is going to be asked of them. And I just find it astonishing that the president and the people around him continue to operate as though, you know, the president can say, save your breath, Rex, diplomacy's a waste of time, and think that my mom is going to be walking along with him towards a preventative war against North Korea. And and if my mom's going to have hesitation, her South Korean and Japanese counterparts are going to have even more hesitation. The president seems to mistakenly believe he is a genius at engaging the public. He, I will grant that he has an enormous ability to throw rhetorical hand grenades that scatter shrapnel all over the public. But that is not the same thing as bringing people together to support a policy you believe is important. I think that's been evident on DACA. It's been evident on healthcare, And that capacity matters even more important on foreign policy, and especially on the sharp end of foreign policy, when you think you are going to put lives at risk. Can I jump in, so, Laura, so, give us a few points here? Just uh, okay. picking up on the last couple of things, I think, you know, Corey's absolutely right in the in the important role that the president has always played in in harnessing support um, and coordination for a strategy. And I think if we take the you know North Korea is a real threat, and even putting aside questions of a drive towards war or military options, you know we are at a point with this program that this administration has got to take real meaningful action, or we are being we are going to be in a whole new world of um, of capabilities that they have and are able to potentially change the you know stability equation across the Pacific. I think one really good example, there was a story that came out um, over the weekend about the Egyptians um, potentially trying to obtain some North Korean um, military 
hardware and the steps that were taken in order to interdict that shipment. And to me, it was a great case study in the kind of international coordination that's necessary to make sanctions mean something, to take meaningful action, to really begin to contain this threat and ideally be able to push back on it. We can't do that if we don't have a coordinated strategy, number one. Number two, if the president's words don't mean anything, I don't know how we can engage in deterrence in any meaningful way now or in the future, not just with North Korea, but with other actors where the president's words have always been sort of paramount and have been the biggest parameters of policy. And finally, my last point on this is that I'm less concerned about a drive towards preventative war. I mean, I'm concerned about that. But my biggest fear in all of this is that Trump says something like, you know, that makes Kim Jong-un believe that U.S. action is imminent. I don't think that Kim Jong-un is going to take offensive action. What he may do is take something that he believes to be preemptive action because he thinks U.S. action is imminent. And I think that that is an enormous threat. And we have to remember that in the North Korean system, they don't think about a diversity of voices like we do. And I think that it's really important that we think about this from their perspective, how they're reading Trump's words, and to just discount them as irrelevant would be something that would kind of be anathema to their entire logic. Well, let me follow up on that, Susan, because one of the things that struck me in all of this is that Trump essentially was saying negotiations don't matter. We are not continuing with them. I don't put any credence in them. We will have to go another way. Now, doesn't, I mean, there are two possibilities there if you're Kim Jong-un. One is that he doesn't really mean it, um, but it's still, even in that particular case, uh, would give him a justification to take action and say, well, look, they said there were no negotiations. This is self-defense. I mean, isn't he playing into Kim Jong-un's hands with this kind of behavior? Well, I, I think that's exactly the risk. And, and Laura identified it. I mean, this is, you know, think about what we talked about with the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is what it is. It's the, it's the risk that the other side will miscalculate based on incomplete or inaccurate reading of us. And, you know, Trump, by embracing willful confusion wherever possible. And again, this this might be a charitable interpretation, but by embracing willful confusion as his most consistent foreign policy theme uh, makes it extremely hard for people outside of our system to understand what he's going to do, especially somebody like Kim Jong-un. I also think it's important to remember that Donald Trump actually doesn't care. I don't think he spends a lot of time thinking about moves down the chessboard when it comes to North Korea or even about foreign policy in general. He is domestically politically focused. He is focused on his ratings. He is focused on uh, you know, a sense of marketing and branding around his ongoing foreign policy controversies far more than the underlying substance of it by all accounts. And I think in that sense, it may well be that it was as simple as, you know, hey, Rex, you know, you're stepping on my message here. My people in the heartland are loving this uh, war of words with North Korea. It's doing really well for me at a time when I'm getting clobbered by this Puerto Rican thing. And, you know, I've scared the crap out of people in middle America that we might be having a nuclear war. And this is working really well for me. Well, so, Corey, Susan used the term willful confusion as a policy. But also, I you know, you could... Um, derived from the subsequent thing she said, that it, it may actually be more like witless confusion. That he, <laughs> you know, that he, that, 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 you know, he may, after the fact, say there was a plan here, but 
He's not really paying attention to it. He is actually confused. He is on a different page with Mattis. Probably, I mean, with uh, um, Tillerson, he, he may be on a different page with Mattis as well. Sometimes he seems to be on a different page with McMaster. Uh, and we're seeing this now time and time again. You know, even in the Puerto Rico thing, the president's going, well, here's, you know, here's what the situation is on the ground. Uh, and then the three-star general that you sent to Puerto Rico to go, that he sent to Puerto Rico to go and master the thing says, no, that's not actually right. And it's getting to be almost a standard course of action for the president to be in a different page from the rest of the administration. This this is this has got to be I, bewildering to the world. I agree with that as far as it goes, David, but I don't think it goes far enough, which is that um, I would be somewhat more sanguine if the president was the only inchoate piece of this. And and I do think that members of the cabinet are trying to orchestrate policy amongst themselves. I think you see it on the um, the joint statements that the Secretary of Defense, the DNI, and the Secretary of State have issued on a couple of different issues, importantly on North Korea, when they wanted to tamp down some of the... Um, some of the spiraling coming out of the White House. I think you have seen uh, prior coordination on the ISIS fight and on the war in Afghanistan on the part of the cabinet and the national security advisor. But what um, the spanner in the works, as the British would say, is that the president appears to feel trapped by that kind of behavior. He lashes out right, refusing the Afghan strategy five or six times uh, because he felt boxed in by the cabinet coordination. So there's only so much you can do in an American presidential administration to protect us against the person we elect president. And the president's clearly much more comfortable operating where all the boats are rocking. He seems to like that environment is point one. Point two, though, is that I don't even think the president is the sole problem. And, and let me just catalog a couple of the inconsistencies on North Korea. So there's the Secretary of State saying we're engaged in negotiations and we have channels open to the North Koreans. The president slams that down. Uh, slams that down over the weekend. The national security advisor has said on several occasions that North Korea is undeterrable. And yet our policy towards Korea is predicated on threatening the use of military force and deterring their action. So, so that's an internal inconsistency that has nothing to do with the president. The Secretary of All Defense, the lodestar of reason in this administration, has even vacillated on whether we are going to retaliate against an, any North Korean attack on us or our allies, or whether the threat to us in our allies is adequate to provoke an American military response. These, are, these sound like small semantic things, they're actually not. They they are predicated on different policy approaches to the problem. And the president is not the only thing messing up sound strategy in this administration. All right. Well, I let me get. Think, OK, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that it's worth 
uh, asking if we're not being cynical enough and we're not being objective enough about about our own nation. I, I would I would suggest the thought experiment of imagine that we work for the intelligence service of North Korea or Iran or Russia, for that matter, and are trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the United States. You know, I, I, I think that they are very seriously asking themselves the question that I would, that, that as I said earlier, I don't know the answer to, and I wish I did know the answer, uh, which is to what extent inside the U.S. government are there active conversations going on at a very high level about what do we do? Our president is crazy. Are there situations in which we we try to manipulate him? Are there situations in which we don't obey him? Are there situations in which we withhold information from him? You know, that if I were looking at this from an outside perspective, um, I would be saying things are really falling apart over there. Um, it's not clear who is in charge, if anyone. It looks like different factions around Trump are trying to fill the leadership vacuum created by an unpredictable, erratic, and, and only inconsistently engaged president, uh, and doing that by manipulating what gets in front of him, manipulating what they know about his easily manipulable emotions. Uh, it's clear that they are forming sometimes short-term, sometimes longer-term alliances between, you know, between themselves. And I would be trying to read those tea leaves. I, I, I think we still, despite everything, despite everything we have said about Trump and everything we know about Trump, we still tend to revert back to, oh, but this is the United States of America and it's still kind of business as usual. I suspect that our, our adversaries are more willing than we are to say, maybe it's not. And I think, I think it's worth doing that thought experiment to ask what what they might be seeing and whether what they might be seeing is closer to the reality than what we sometimes are seeing. Well, let's let's then pose the question, what can a constructively minded person do? Um, and let me turn to you, Laura, and ask a question about one person. I'm not sure I would characterize them as constructively minded, but perhaps they could have a constructively minded moment. And that's Rex Tillerson. Say you're talking to Rex Tillerson. He goes over to the German Marshall Fund. Do you probably have wonderful facilities there for afternoon coffee, and you're all sitting there having an afternoon coffee, and Rex goes, you know, I have a little problem. Every time I open my mouth, my boss undercuts me. You know, and he says, um, Laura, you've been, you know, in the administration before. What should I do? What should I do in this circumstance? I wish I had a good piece of advice to give. I mean, you know, some people are advising him to just get out, and I, I don't know if that's what I would advise or not. I mean, I think if we want to talk substance, um, I would advise, number one, get on the same page with the cabinet secretaries. I mean, I think Corey's absolutely right to point to the fact that this isn't just inconsistency from Trump. I mean, he's the worst offender here. Um, but we have seen inconsistencies across, I think, trying to marshal a strategy across, you know, with allies across the administration is incredibly important. So I would advocate that. Um, I would advocate listening to the experts in the administration. There are really good experts on these issues that are in the deep state, if you will. Um, you know, really great intelligence analysts who can give exactly the kind of points and perspective that Rosa was just suggesting that we need, who do understand the North Korean psyche, who do understand how these things um, are received on the other end, and who can provide that perspective. And I think that trying to really harness results by bringing together all of the different elements of our national power, I mean, that's what it's going to take to really have a meaningful North Korean strategy, strategy towards North Korea. And I think 
think that that's something the Secretary of State can do, um, you know, if he's able to work together collaboratively, collaboratively with his fellow cabinet secretaries. Now, is that going to be possible at the end of the day? I do think there have been glimpses of attempts, as Corey noted, by these joint statements. Um, you know, Mattis and Tillerson had a joint op-ed that they ran at one point that was based on a policy that, in fact, the president himself actually blessed earlier this year and has just been kind of, you know, completely ignored. Um, I think you try and get results to the best you can. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that we are in a really awful spot. And I don't know that there is great advice for the Secretary of State. Well, and I would just say that he may be in trouble with Trump precisely because he's tried to follow elements of yours. He's clearly not a super skilled, you know, kind of like internal politics person. He's clearly, but, you know, it looks like where Trump has gotten so angry with him has when he's trying to follow more sort of conventional mainstream policy positions, presumably that are being recommended by people such as remain inside the State Department and that he he clearly has not a knack for selling those policies internally to President Trump. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's some of the reason why he's often uh, publicly embarrassed and humiliated and he clearly doesn't have the deft political touches that, that Jim Mattis has, for example. Well, does Jim Mattis have such deft political touches? Well, he, I mean, went, he managed not to suck up to him at that uh, uh, cabinet meeting. You know that's very that's very true, and and I, and I guess one of my questions was, you know, as the more I watch um, the Trump administration, the more I'm reminded of Game of Thrones, and not because of the palace intrigue, but rather because you know every other character in Game of Thrones seems to be a eunuch, and and you know it seems like to get ahead in the Trump administration, you can't actually challenge him. You know, you listen to Mnuchin and you listen to Tillerson and you listen to the White House staff and they, it, it sounds like that cabinet meeting has never ended. Someone said to me yesterday uh, who had uh, spent a lot of time around Trump, at, at, not at this exact moment but previously, he said, you know, he likes the applause and the people who figure that out uh, figure out how to, you know, make it sound like loud applause in front of him and they get their way. Mm. That's a that's a pretty pretty disheartening thing. Now, you know, as as we go and as 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 we look at this, there there's been a little bit of sort of dancing around this, and so I, in in this conversation and in every other conversation, um, but it comes up every week, and that is, you know, if we put ourselves in the position of. Rosa's Foreign Intelligence Service. I, I mean the hypothetical one, not the one that she's <laughs> the actually The one that I actually of. run out of my yeah. living room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> if we put ourselves in that position, I've got to believe that, you know, some high percentage of foreign intelligence services are seriously contemplating whether Trump is mentally defective. Now, is that over the top in your view, anybody? I'm not dancing around that, David. I keep saying crazy, and when I say crazy, I actually mean crazy. Um, what about the rest of you guys? <laughs> I mean, clearly Rosa knows crazy, and this is a and special. I know show. crazy. But but <laughs> I'm just I'm just wondering. I mean, you know, this, this is a serious issue. I mean, this guy is not behaving in a way that suggests that that he's a terribly rational character. I think it depends on what what rational is based on here. I mean, I had the distinction in my last job as 
Hillary Clinton's foreign policy advisor, of getting to um, memorize and have an encyclopedic knowledge of every statement that Donald Trump had ever made on foreign policy um, prior to wow. becoming elected president. I've tried wow. to ex- Is there a cure for that. Or I know I've tried to expunge it, and I got to tell you. Um, and and here's just a couple of things I would note. I mean, one is you know it's really um, it's always it's all about Trump at the end of the day. Um, And so he's motivated by, I mean, it goes to Susan's point on the applause line here, right? It's all about him. Um, It's all about sort of what he thinks makes him look good. Um, It's all about whether or not he's been slighted. Um, You can see where he's lashed out over time, sometimes very inconsistently at different regimes um, or different leaders or different countries. Um, He has an admiration for strongmen, which you'll recall at one point he actually put Kim Jong-un kind of in that list during the campaign saying he would meet with him. They would have burgers, not steaks, or I can't remember the exact quote, but because I've expunged some of the encyclopedic knowledge. But, um, you know, he he has at times had that um, that affinity towards Kim Jong-un, but clearly at this point feels that he's being challenged by him. And so I think that we need to see it through the very personalized lens here. Now, you know, does that, you know, I'm not a psychologist. Um, I've certainly seen many talk about that in the frame of sort of a narcissistic personality disorder. And when everything becomes about you, is that really, you know, where does that put you? I'm not going to diagnose here. But I do think that there is a frame by which he does sort of interpret these things. Now, does that make him a rational actor in like the classic foreign policy sense? Um, um, I don't I don't know. I don't know that it does because he's not necessarily, I think, I mean, I think the real core of the question here is if that's his frame, is he acting on behalf of what he believes is the best interest of the nation or is he actually acting on behalf of what he believes is the best interest of himself? And that's a really fundamental and problematic question to have to be asking. Although I don't think there's any doubt about what the answer is, is there? Not in my mind. No. So let me ask a question. Let me ask Susan and then Corey this, this question. You know, as we do this diagnosis here and we set aside the issue of whether he's crazy or not, or we stipulate that he's crazy in some degree, but focus on this issue of wanting the applause and lashing out at the people who are not giving him the applause. Um, and we look at the next few months and we see that in the, in the course of the next few months that the North Korea situation is going to get harder, not easier. I think that the odds are very low that the United States is actually going to keep the North Koreans from continuing to test and getting nuclear weapons, which is going to make him look worse and worse. Uh, he's got this ongoing issue in Puerto Rico. He's going to have probably in the next couple of months, you know, a couple of folks who were in his administration or on his team indicted. Uh, The applause may get dimmer and dimmer, and he may feel more and more cornered. And the question is, how does this guy with that personality then behave in the face of a North Korean provocation, in the face of an Iranian provocation, in the face of other provocations? Does he become more dangerous in the situation that is more likely to unfold over the next several months? Let's start with Susan. Well, uh, to take Rose's proverbial best case scenario, uh, you know, we'd rather have him beating up on NFL football players than uh, on people with nuclear weapons. Right. So, you know, he clearly is is a guy who turns to conflict and division when pressed into a corner. He's also got a history of making bad decisions when he is feeling under stress, when he is feeling 
attacked when he is feeling vulnerable. And, you know, in fact, the, you know, some of the worst decisions that he made in his business career came at the moment when he was also entering into bankruptcy. Why? He was in a manic phase. He was uh, uh, also, that's when he got rid of his first wife. I mean, you know, he has decision-making issues, it seems like, when he uh, gets in trouble. And so the scenario you're raising, I think, is the one to be alarmed about, which is uh, as the applause dwindles, uh, as these uh, conflicts continue on unresolved, and there's more stresses on him politically. Uh, you know, so the question is, I, I still kind of come back to a little bit what Rosa said, which is that I don't really think his agenda is to create a war with North Korea. I don't think he has an ideology that says we are doomed to conflict with China and therefore I must do this. Or, you know, he 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 really just wants good ratings uh, and he wants to win and he wants to succeed however, in, in ways that he defines success. So it's probably all things said, right, easier to have a big fight with NFL players or the mayor of Puerto Rico or other people uh, than it is to have a big fight with nuclear weapons. You know, you've just raised a scenario there that I didn't imagine was possible, which is the one in which Corey has even more antipathy for Trump than she already does. But were he to, in fact, embrace the Thucydides trap, she would turn on him with real vengeance. <laughs> yes, she would. <laughs> uh, Although but, I would and, pay any amount of money to hear Trump say the word Thucydides. Just, just you know what? He loves money, but I don't think he would take that bet. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think he so, would. So, so my answer to the question, uh, as we discussed several podcasts ago. Um, I'm still where Rosa and I were at that time, which is that I don't think President Trump actually pulls the trigger on a war with North Korea because there's there's no easy, you know, dedicate the golf trophy to solve this problem solution to the North Korean threat. And the culpability for the damage that will be done possibly to the United States, certainly to Japan, and certainly to South Korea. I, that is just not a winning proposition. So I, I do not share the view that as the vice tightens on him for all of his other larceny and misanthropy, I actually don't think it results in President Trump choosing to go to war on the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps we are all underestimating um, his Houdini-like ability to find a deus ex machina rather than honor a red line or admit he's crossed it, right? Like I can see the tweet now. Who knew there were 8,000 artillery pieces aimed at South Korea? (laughs) (laughs) Must be very careful to protect South Koreans. (laughs) Exactly. That this is going to be revealed wisdom that somehow math class is hard. (laughs) And that's going to be his, that's going to be his escape. That by the way, is, I, was by the way in, that's genius, Corey. I have to say, like, I now think that's going to happen. <laughs> but the question then, I, I agree, actually. But the question is, but 
does that happen in time for us to avoid some kind of inadvertent conflict? I mean, I know I keep coming back to this, but I, whether I, it's <laughs> whether it's you know Kim Jong Un miscalculating and misinterpreting something that um, you know that Trump says, or whether it's you know I mean I don't roll out a scenario in which the North Koreans engage in something like the Chunan sinking or the Waipido shelling that we saw in 2010 to try to um, you know see how the U.S. would react, test what we would do. You know, a, a big part of their aim right now is trying to create space between Seoul, Tokyo and Washington, so-called decoupling, as we've seen, um, you know, in classic, you know, this is not a new thing in in deterrence. But Kim Jong-un certainly trying to push that right now. And, you know, does he try something and then what happens? And so I, I think that Corey's right that, that that's going to be Trump's out. My question is just how bad does it get before then? And then I come back to the earlier point of even if even if the administration doesn't pursue some insane policy, what are they actually going to do to help address the, the serious threat that we face? Because we need some real affirmative policy that's completely lacking right now. But we're probably not going to get it. I mean, I, I think I think in keeping with my best case scenario is that neither our allies nor our adversaries pay much attention to Donald Trump. I think our best case scenario for the next three years is that no non-U.S. actors do anything cataclysmically stupid or aggressive, and we sort of tread water. Uh, things getting, you know, the water gets a little deeper and a little choppier, but we keep treading water for three years, and then hopefully he's gone. I do have this picture in my head now, though, Corey, of, uh, you know, patriots within the administration. I can see Jim Mattis every time things get crazy with North Korea, bringing Trump a picture of another kneeling NFL athlete and saying, wait, Mr. <laughs> President, have you seen this? You know, because I, 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 they, they, they have to be spending time thinking, at, you know, probably still in alone, alone in their rooms at night when no one else is around, maybe already in rooms with one or two other really trusted people. They have to be having conversations about what do we do? If he comes completely unglued, how do we distract him? How do we keep things from going Corey, off the rails? They have they have to be thinking those things. Well, Rosa, are you familiar with the Schlesinger rule? <laughs> you know, go this on, was on. this was at the end of Nixon's tenure in the White House, and there was a concern yeah. on the part of his advisors that yeah. he was seriously unhinged and drinking all the time and furious and lashing out at people. And his defense secretary basically said, I don't want you to do anything with any orders yeah. that you get unless you clear them with either me or Henry Kissinger. Anybody says the word. OK, nukes, so uh, as the civil military, as the guardian of the civil military space, I hate that example. I think it's an extraordinary <laughs> violation of both the chain of command. And but probably still better than nuclear apocalypse. So, and it, so also, that example the way, didn't say to like, overrule Nixon, right? <laughs> I mean, the order was inform us about it so that we can do something about it. Presumably, way, talk to Nixon and 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 get it undone. By the way, it's not only not a, a you know terrible example. It's not a unique example. Uh, it wasn't just Schlesinger who said this. There were times when Nixon was drunk, when Haldeman or somebody would go straight to Kissinger and say, "You handle this," including several very very serious threats. Uh, and the same thing, you know, happened at, at a couple of points on 9-11 where people went to Cheney without going up the, the full chain of command. Uh, it does, this this kind of thing does happen in administrations, although, you know, clearly we, we, have, we have a little bit more uh, intimation 
this early in this presidency that it may have to happen again. By the way, Susan and, and Laura, I do want to point out to you, if you don't listen to this podcast on a regular basis, that when Rosa says best case scenario, usually what that means <laughs> complete apocalypse. And, Absolutely. and frozen, it means get into your silo. It means it means the frozen face of the deserted earth with only pages of her last book blowing across it. <laughs> because it could be worse. There could be no pages left. Exactly. <laughs> so so we, we rely on her as the uh, Keeper of the crown of thorns, um, and, and I don't right. think it's—I don't think it's a civil-military relations issue fundamentally, Corey. I—I I think that you—I think that there there have been, and no doubt in our republic, continue to be moments of breakdown, and and I mean there are all kinds of interesting frames to think about this, whether it's you know Bruce Ackerman's constitutional moments or or the sort of Lincoln's all the all the laws, but one. You know, clearly there are moments of breakdown which the republic has recovered from, and I, I don't know that it, I don't know that generalizing too much from the moments of breakdown tells us much of anything. You know, I, I, I think that there are there are moments when individuals make decisions of conscience that don't really have much of anything to do with structural politics that just have to do with the the sort of uniqueness of particular situations. So I, I'm not as worried as you about the civil military relations potential crisis or precedent. Yeah, also, by the way, I think in most systems, including in, 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 in our own military and in our own civilian government, there are fail-safes. There are things built into the system to assume that sometimes somebody gives an egregiously wrong order, demented order, uninformed order, and something's got to stop to save the system from killing itself. Uh, and we had the uh, the recent death of this uh, Russian Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, uh, who exercised at one moment that, that you know that kind of judgment and saved the world from tens of millions of deaths uh, in potential nuclear war in the 70s because he you know overrode what should have been a systemic response. Um, so, you know, these, these things exist and they exist for a reason. It's not a terribly bad thing. Probably the most important systemic override mechanism in the United States is that of the deep state and deep state radio. We're here to provide the kind of perspective that sometimes leaders don't provide. And if you listen to us, you'll end up in a better place than if you listen to them. And that's why we hope that you'll join us at another episode of Deep State radio real real soon and i hope you will also agree with me that it was great today to have with us laura susan Corey, and rosa join us again very soon deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of trg interactive media our podcast today was produced in cooperation with goat rodeo productions and was supervised by ian enright Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.